when we use it in that sense for an alarm going off, it actually means it goes on. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we've been talking about contronyms. Uh, these are words that contradict themselves in meaning. They're also called autoantonyms or one that I like a lot, antagonym. A pretty clever way of putting it. People like to focus on these and draw up lists of these things. Um, are they really important in our language usage? Do we really need to be aware of them, or is this just a curiosity? It's just something to play with. Yeah, <laughs> It doesn't have any uh, scholarly point to it, really. It does help to make English one of the most confusing languages in the world for people trying to learn it from outside. It's just another one of those things that can add to the confusion, uh, including the spelling of English is, is always pointed out. And part of the reason that the spelling of English is so difficult. Oh, there's the classic thing, uh, G-H-O-T-I. That spells fish, right? Because right. if you take the G-H from enough... And uh, you take the O sound from, you know, another word, that vowel sound, um, uh, and then the T-I from a word like action or something like that. So G Yeah, that was George Bernard Shaw's suggestion. Yes, that's always attributed to George Bernard Shaw. Of course, we nobody would look at that and pronounce it as anything other than goatee. <laughs> but it does point out that spelling in English can be very difficult because there's a history there in a lot of these words, uh, an etymology where certain things that used to get pronounced are no longer pronounced. And in fact, let's segue into our list of contronyms here because we're going to start with one that is, etymologically speaking, it's a contronym. I don't think it's really a contronym as we would look at it today, but the history is so interesting um, and you found some things about it. Let's start with the word ought, A-U-G-H-T. Tell us, yes. tell us, talk about that. Right. So originally this is an Anglo-Saxon noun, meaning a possession, something one possesses, property. So you own ought, you own something. There's a different Anglo-Saxon word with a different etymology, which is a completely different spelling to begin with. Uh, the earliest spelling is wit. W-H-I-T, and it means creature, being, thing, and it could also mean person. W-I-G-H-T is a spelling that we see in that sense, uh, even in Shakespeare's time, and certainly in Chaucer's, white, which would have been pronounced wicht. But wit uh, has survived only in a single expression, not a wit, not a bit. That's what you're saying. There's just absolutely... Not no truth to what you were just saying or something like that. It's a, a negative expression. Now the wit spelling meaning creature being thing person evolved over uh, three centuries later into ocht from wit to ocht. We've we've lost those back of the throat sounds in most and uh, well in all words in English unless they're imported from Yiddish or something. So we're stuck with these odd gh spellings, but it makes a little more sense if you think as a turning into ocht. And O-U-G-H-T 
was confusing as a spelling because there already was another word, acht, a verb meaning owed, as in um, any kind of duty or obligation. I really ought to return your lawnmower to you. So to avoid the confusion between the two different words spelled O-U-G-H-T, it was decided eventually to make the official spelling for the one meaning something, A-U-G-H-T. So there was that cross. That that's, has permanently caused some confusion. There are always people who get those two words mixed up, A-U-G-H-T and O-U-G-H-T. But that's not the subject for today. To go back to A-U-G-H-T, which used to be wit, it comes to mean anything, whatever. So no longer specifically a person or a possession or something. It just means anything. Meanwhile, not with N-A-U-G-H-T came to be used to label the number zero in the 18th century. And now not is the opposite of ought, and it means nothing. And so it made sense to use it for zero. But for some reason, early in the 19th century, people began to drop the initial N and use ought to mean zero. And this is one that we can't blame on the Americans for a change. It turns up in England first. Uh, and people might refer to a date early in the 20th century as 1907. Uh, back at the turn of the millennium, some people suggested we should call the first decade of the 21st century the aughts or the oughties. But that doesn't seem to have caught on. There are also some people that said we ought to call it the naughties, but that was a joke. <laughs> so the upshot of all this evolution is that ought can mean anything if you're seeing it in, a, say, a 19th or earlier century context, and ought can mean nothing. Well, in that sense, it is a contronym, although you won't hear people running around saying, I have ought anymore. <laughs> no, but you might read it. If you're a lover of early literature, you might run into it. Well, if you look at it this way, um, the word ought meant a thing or something. It was not very descriptive, but it just meant thing. And if you put the N in front of it to negate it, it's similar to what we do with the words thing and nothing. Right. And uh, if you get this, then we're getting this interference from this other uh, usage, this not, which for whatever reason the N gets dropped. It would be as if we decided to drop N-O <laughs> from nothing. <laughs> and then we just said, well, I, I have a thing or I have a thing could mean I have something or I have nothing. Uh, Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be horrible. Horrible situation. <laughs> let's, let's not go there. But uh, it is interesting. You look at the history of it, and uh, it all fits together. And so, voila, we have a contronym. Yeah, one of those historically evolving ones. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about another one that's an imperfect one, but you could uh, construe this to work in this way, and that is the word buckle. What have we got about the word buckle? Well, this had a complex history, too. Buckles were originally curved pieces of metal, generally, and it split in two from that original root, it could mean a fastener to hold the clothing onto your body and that fastener was curved. Or it could mean the collapsing of a piece of metal under pressure. So it became curved. So these are completely different meanings, but they're not opposite. Uh, some people have tried to make them into a contronym. One person suggests buckle your pants to hold together versus your knees buckle to collapse, fall apart. So that's a bit strained, I think. 
Yeah, the meanings oppose one another better when you're comparing the noun with the verb. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you have to cross parts of speech to get the true contronym, I think we're a little out of bounds. Yeah. Not all belt buckles are curved anymore, although what they hold in is often curved. Right. Yeah. Well, let's go. Let's let's get to a, a real classic. Again, this has to do with uh, I think the history of it, right? I mean, the word cleave. Yeah. Originally, they were spelled differently. Right, and I'm not going to go into detail about this one because it's it's very familiar and lots of people discuss it. But it has two different meanings, and the the meaning to stick together, to adhere, is not very common today, except cleave to your spouse, you know, stay faithful and loyal to the person you're married to, that kind of expression, or cleaving to your word or something like that, sticking to it adhering uh and then you you cleave a piece of wood to make it into kindling mm-hmm. so you're splitting it apart so it can mean to fasten together keep together and it can mean to split apart mm-hmm. but they were really two different words and it's just that the spellings evolved to be the same yeah that does create actual confusion Right. If you say you want the bricks to cleave, you you've got to make sure you you're either building something or you're breaking it down, right? So yeah, you're either a, a bricklayer or a karate master. Yeah. Now the word clip also uh, is a fairly classic one. Let's talk a little bit about clip. Yes, to clip was originally to clasp, usually another person. So you clip somebody in your arms to give them a hug. Today, if you give them a clip, you might punch them in the jaw. There's also a different word with a different history to clip with a pair of scissors is completely different from either of those meanings. And that may come just as a guess that it comes from the snipping sound that shears make when you're you're cutting something. But anyway, to clip as to clasp, give them a hug, punch them in the jaw, uh, pretty neat opposition. Mm -hmm. Well, you point out the word custom is sometimes put on these lists of contronyms. I hadn't really thought about that one. How does that work? I did learn something from your description of it, though, when I was going through it, because I I didn't realize custom made originally meant something that was for the customer, which makes complete sense. (laughs) Yes. It's kind of an abbreviation. Yeah. So if, if what's ordinarily done, what's the usual thing is customary and that's the common custom that you follow if you want to do something that's just like what everybody else does but if you want something specially made you have to have it custom made and that expression doesn't come from the same root it comes from the word as you say customer so a customer is the person who's buying the goods and orders it specifically and says i want it with this very peculiar design and uh, it'll be just for me in the United Kingdom, custom-made clothes are called bespoke clothing. Mm. And that means it's, it's a form of uh, speak that we don't use anymore except in this expression. Uh, something is bespoke shoes or bespoke shirts or whatever are custom-made ones, usually in Savile Row. Yeah, it and it sounds strange to the American ear. To hear that word. And of course, it, because custom made, it gets shortened down to custom. So, whoa, mm-hmm. that, that, your shoes are custom. <laughs> uh, and and then this other meaning of custom, common custom. Uh, that's where people get into that 
Hey, we found one, a contronym. Here we go. Right, but again, probably not one that's going to confuse many people. No, no. And generally, these are not going to confuse people, but it's interesting to think about. And, and the word cut also is uh, pointed out as a contronym. We don't, I don't normally think of it that way. And the reason I don't normally think about it way, that way is, as you point out, it's not really that the meaning actually changes. It just gets, just depends on what the perspective is on the cutting. Right. And this is one I think that probably a high school or college student thought of. <laughs> <laughs> We're well past that period, so we don't think about it. So cutting class mm. is to skip class. Uh, so get to get out of class. If you want to cut a line, um, you're getting in the line. You want to be included. So excluding yourself or being included. But really, they both have to do with separation. Uh, the student is trying to be separated from the class, so cutting out of the class. And cutting into the line is the two halves of the line, the people ahead of you and the people behind you are you're cutting, severing the line there. So it makes perfect sense, and it's not really a contronym. Yeah, and when we say, can I get cuts... Uh, we haven't said, can I get cut since elementary school? <laughs> but um, asking to cut in line, you don't normally think about what you're doing is you're splitting the line into two lines because it's still one line after it's been cut. But it, effectively, that's what's happening, and that's the origin of the usage. Now, the word dust, you pointed out, can be used two different ways, and this makes me think of, did I mention the, the children's book, um, Amelia Bedelia? Yeah, yes, you mentioned it. I did. Me. Okay. All right. I, I, well, I, I don't know if you did. You mention it in the earlier episode. I don't. I think we just were talking informally. Right. You... Well. Okay. So for the podcast listeners, I mean, let let's everybody be aware of the children's book Amelia Bedelia, who is the confused maid who goes around uh, taking the instructions of what to do that day very literally. So they tell her to dust the furniture and what does she do she throws dust all over the furniture <laughs> so yeah you point out that that's actually uh, some people like to put that in as a, a contronym yeah it shows up on most lists i think dust is of course the fine debris that settles onto things and removing it is called dusting and it's just short for removing the dust so it's it's logical enough it's the, the kind of thing that evolves all the time in English and not, again, confusing except to maybe very silly maids. Yes. <laughs> well, she is silly. And we'll talk more about her when we get to the word trim. There's a fun fun one with that. But let's let's continue down. Uh, and we can dispense of some of these. The word fast shows up on this. How does that work? Yeah, well, if you're a runner, you move fast, mm -hmm. right? But if you're bound fast... You're stationary, you're, so you're tied up, you can't move, fastened in place. So it's really two different words, one meaning quick and the other meaning tied up or attached, fixed in place. So you might be slow to doze off, but wind up fast asleep. <laughs> okay. So bound deep in sleep. All right. But you don't go to sleep fast necessarily before you fall fast asleep. Yeah. Now, the next one we're going to talk about makes me want to um, impose a rule once and for all for people drafting these lists. If you're dra drafting your list of contronyms and you need to work across 
parts of speech. I said this before, but I'll say it again. Don't put that word on the list. But this one shows up, the word fine. And you really have to twist that one around. Well, yeah, I think what's happening here is uh, just the word is, is being diminished a bit. A table that will do just fine if you can't get anything better mm-hmm. is not as good as a fine piece of furniture. Mm-hmm. But I think they really are similar. Um, it's like saying, that's really good, and saying, well, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Good enough. Yeah. <laughs> and the word good keeps being used, but it it can mean outstanding, and it can also mean just okay and fine. Fine. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you have an argument with somebody, <laughs> and you concede the point, although not really being happy about it, by saying, well, fine, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean... That's a fine argument. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, and and that's that's simply uh, sarcasm, really. Um, mm-hmm. Or it's not not exactly a contronym. It's using the word in the same way. I would say it's just that no. you're expressing it to mean the opposite. But if you say a table will do fine, that's an adverb. And if you say it's a fine piece of furniture, that's that's an adjective. So eh, we're not we're not really in the territory of something that's truly used two different ways. And as you point out, the meaning is really similar anyway. So people out there, if you're looking to edit down your list of contronyms, you can take this one out. But you can't take out the next one because this is truly confusing. All right, uh, confused me. Yeah, well. <laughs> You know, for first degree. What 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 do we know about first degree? There's two real specific opposite meanings of that. First degree murder is the worst. That's the the one that you're going to get the worst punishment for. Sure, it's the most premeditated. By the way, if you hire somebody to to do your murder for you, that is first degree murder. Um, that's mm. about as premeditated as it gets. This is the completely planned and fully executed murder. And that is called first degree. And that's the one that is also um, some states it'll it'll be punishable by death. If they can get the chemicals that they need. Yeah, right. Well, the state of Arkansas is, is getting <laughs> short on that, I hear. Mm. Yeah, let's not talk about that unpleasant subject. Uh, but in medicine, we're using very benign chemicals to treat people uh, a first degree burn is the a mildest kind mm-hmm. a third degree burn would be really bad yes a, a first degree burn hits the top layer of the skin and second degree goes down deeper and a third degree burn would be the one that would be the the, the deepest down inside beneath the surface so those are the degrees now it's it's a little hard to square those two usages because why exactly? I don't know, but you you could hear first degree murder and th- and get it confused with first degree burn and think, well, uh, okay, uh, uh, that's that was probably accidental homicide. Yeah, certainly that's not the case. Let's talk about a couple of others before we sign off. What what about the word garnish? Yeah, garnish has uh, the most common meaning and then a rather obscure one. Uh, most common is to garnish food by sprinkling parsley or some other thing, something else on it. 
And the legal sense is to take away someone's wages when you garnish them. Now, that turns up in articles about deadbeat dads, for instance, and it's definitely a legal term. And the legal term is a variant spelling of an older word, warnis, W-A-R-N-I-S, warning. Mm. And technically, it meant to serve notice on someone for the purpose of attaching their money, which was owed to a debtor. And it's come to be mean, okay, you owe um, wages for some reason because you've got a fine outstanding because you were supposed to be supporting your kid or for whatever reason, your wages can be garnished. And it's not actually the taking of the wages, but the notice that it's going to happen. That was originally the garnishing. And it's very different from decorating the food with a little tasty something sprinkled on top yeah and and once again these classic uh contronyms garnish meaning put something on and also take something away often can be traced back to two separate words that joined in spelling and pronunciation at some point right Mm -hmm. yeah uh well here's another pretty classic one i i think uh give out yeah when we get to two word expressions Mm -hmm. then the field widens because words can be combined for different purposes which were not necessarily evolving out of single words in the past so you can give out or distribute free samples of champagne until the supply gives out it's exhausted there isn't any more so distribute and exhausted but both of these have to do with the transfer of goods. So you're giving out the champagne, the supply gives out. They both have this image in them of distribution, and one is just distribution that goes on for a while, and the other one is when the distribution is exhausted and you can't do any more, it's completely given out. So it's really a more extreme stage of the first rather than being its opposite. Speaking of... uh two-word expressions let's let's do some other of these two-word expressions they're kind of fun give out is one another one you have is hold up so you can literally hold somebody up say you hold up your drunk friend to get him into a cab uh, or you can impede something something happening having to deal with them may hold up the progress of the party so it means to hold back and to hold up really to impede so if you're supporting a person by holding them up i don't think that really means to press forward necessarily you could just be getting you know stand on your feet don't collapse mm-hmm. you know or, or you're holding a kid up high to see the parade over the crowd in front of you or something that doesn't necessarily mean to move forward but it does mean to support something getting held up because a football game was held up by a thunderstorm something like that mm-hmm. that's sort of to me, they sort of strike each other at a tangent. Yeah. Well, we have another one that is kind of a fun one, went off. All right. So um, the example I created for this is when the lights went off, we weren't sure if we would hear if the smoke alarm went off. And when we use it in that sense for an alarm going off, it actually means it goes on. <laughs> yeah. I'm not quite sure why people started doing that. Um, this thing about car alarms going off. It's something that we hear a lot of uh, because we travel the ferries 
frequently. And people who are not familiar with the ferries will often turn on their car alarms when they park on the ferry. And then, of course, the boat is moving around and their car alarm goes off and starts annoying everybody. And so they always have to announce over the, the system. And one time I heard him said, uh, would the owner of the white Audi on the upper deck, please return to your car. Your car alarm has detected that the boat is moving. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's wind up with one that is another two-word expression, and that is wind up. Right. So in baseball, you wind up for the pitch, mm-hmm. which means to get ready. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be used in other expressions, too. Uh, but you could wind up exhausted, so it means end up. So you're either preparing or you're. it's what happens when you're done finished it's all wound up we wound up the meeting now for whatever reason i i saw your list here and i saw the word wind up and that made me think of the expression stem winder which i had to uh, look up and i realized that there could be a contronym in the making here because uh i'm not the only one to think that stem winder is an odd expression for a speech that is supposed to get you really riled up that's supposed to be very exciting that speech was a real stem winder Whereas sitting there and winding your stem sounds like something that would be really dull and uh, uh, uninteresting. So I I actually found a a write-up on that where people were complaining or saying that the word actually is being misused in this opposite meaning. So people will be familiar with the word stem winder and they'll just extrapolate and believe that it means just the opposite of what it's supposed to mean. But the reason why it's called a stem winder, the reason why a stem winder is so exciting is because stem winding watches once upon a time were were really exciting because you didn't have to use a little key to wind up your watch. Well, also, it was causing the action to happen. And it's related to the expression to wind something somebody up uh, to to get a lively reaction. So you wind up your watch, you're causing it to start tick, 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 ticking. Yes, right, right. And uh, so this whole idea of reaching down and just simply like winding the stem and getting the getting the watch going that's that's the metaphor here. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it, that's so passe winding your watch i don't want yeah i think watch. that journalists are about the only ones that use that occasionally yeah that's right yeah it's it's worth knowing if you're reading especially during the political season reading the newspapers there's going to be a journalist out there using it you can be sure well let's wind this up shall we okay <laughs> i think that's a Another good rundown of some more of these contronyms. I'm still interested in talking about some of these other ones. How about you? All right, let's do that next time. Okay, talk to you then. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com with free shipping. Thanks for listening.